Welcome back to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on China, America, the Indo-Pacific, and the fate of the world. I'm Misha Oslin, a fellow at the Hoover Institution, and your co-host, along with my partner, John Yu, a professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley, and a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. John, hello. Hi, Misha. How are you? We're doing well. We're out here on the East Coast with our guest, whom I'm excited for you to introduce to us in a second. How's uh, how's the Bay Area doing? Well, I, it's weird. You know, we're doing okay. I think uh, not a single person has actually died of COVID in the city of San Francisco in about a month. Nevertheless, because of all those crazy cowboys down in Orange County in L.A. who refuse to wear masks or do anything, uh, to recognize the existence of COVID, where the state shutting down again? Well, and John, may, maybe there's been no deaths because you've been shut down. Maybe, maybe the governor knows what he's doing. No, what are you talking? <laughs> crazy? <laughs> Actually, we reopened. There was a brief glimmering of the inside of restaurants for about a week, and now we're taken away. <laughs> well, we're not here to talk about. America's ongoing national nightmare. We're here to talk about Asia's ongoing national nightmare. So I think we have a, a special guest that you know well. Who, who's with us today, John? Uh, Misha, it's great to be joined today by uh, my friend and distinguished scholar, Julian Koo. Julian's a professor at Hofstra. He is one of these fancy distinguished chairs in constitutional law. He's Ooh. also the associate dean. So I'm sure he can tell you exactly what bathrooms are open or closed in the Hofstra Law Building out on Long Island. But most importantly, Julian is one of, I think, the nation's leading experts on China and international law. He's uh, one of the things I've always found interesting about him is he's actually been over there as a Fulbright scholar and has done a lot of investigation into China's claims about the South China Sea, its border disputes. Uh, he actually speaks the language. He likes the food. Uh, he may not be allowed to go there anymore. I don't know if any of us on the podcast, I would almost think being on this podcast is sort of like being automatically PNG'd in China. So you may not be able to go to China anymore after being on our podcast. But no, the bigger China the bigger worry, the bigger worry is if they if they invited us to China and actually gave us a visa. <laughs> then you'd want to see if it actually worked. Then, then you know that that it's like the Roach Motel. You know, you can check in, but you can't check out. So, which well, is interesting. I actually want to ask Julian about that. America and Australia are actually warning their citizens not to uh, to be careful if you go to China. We have yeah, to talk I mean, about why that's happening. Yeah, I mean Canada. You, if you're a Canadian, right? There are two Canadian citizens been uh, taken hostage essentially in order to get the. Uh, daughter of the founder of Huawei out of uh, Canadian extradition proceedings. Since uh, but December it's my goal of 2018. Life, it's right. my goal in life to be barred from entering any dictatorship. So you may not know this, Misha, this is going to make you very jealous, but I am actually on some list that bars me from ever entering Russia. Uh, although I've never, I've had students try to get the executive order and they can't get a copy of it, but apparently they've advised me not to test Putin. I mean, I just I know that if you were barred from, let's say, Italy or Cyprus or some of the places you haunt regularly, that would be a body blow for you. 
I think that's actually Putin calling up to correct my uh, description of the facts. But no, I, but then I'm pretty sure I, we can't go to China now. So the only place left is Iran. I'm working on Iran. I'm trying to figure out a way to get barred in Iran. But let me, let, let, let's get to our guests. I mean, we could go on like this for hours, you and me. Um, Julian's also the associate dean at the Hofstra Law School. And uh, as I said, he's one of great scholars on China and international. He founded uh, this blog, which amongst international law scholars is the number one blog for discussion of international law issues. It's called Opinio Juris. So like many things in law, we give it a Latin name for something very simple, which the Romans actually never would have called it. Uh, just to make people defer to us that they think we know what we're doing. But opinio yours just means, uh, generally it means like what the professors think, stuff professors think. And he's uh, working on a book on China and international law. So I couldn't think of a better guest to have with us uh, today because, and we'll start here, Julian. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks. Great to be here. Great. And just yesterday, perfectly timed, the State Department, Secretary State Pompeo, went out and made a declaration saying that the United States considers China's claims in the South China Seas to be completely illegal and calling on nations in the region to join it and pushing back on China's uh, claims and calling for uh, China to obey the decisions of international tribunals that have also rejected its claims in the South China Sea. So Julian, what, first, could you explain what is China's claim? They you hear about these nine dash lines people talk about, hear about a variety of different islands like the Spratleys and the Paracels and various reefs. And what, what is China's real claim? And do you think it has any I don't know, foundations in the kind of authorities we usually use? In international law. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, John. I think this is a great place to start with China because uh, it's one of the most um, newsy big issues right now. And it is probably one of the most disruptive things China's done in the last 10 years that's really changed its relationship with the rest of the world is when it's pursuing its South China Sea claims. So essentially, um, China has a very unusual claim. So the, what they have done is they, they are They've claimed the South China Sea, that all the land features in the South China Sea, they claim they have sovereign um, control over or the ownership over. And um, the South China Sea is a very large body of water, which is basically bounded by Vietnam on one side and the Philippines on the other, and on the south end by Indonesia and Malaysia and a few other countries. So China's actually quite far away. So what they're it's claiming about, is... The, it's, about size, it's about the size of the Mediterranean Ocean, a little bit bigger. Right, and, and they're 600 miles, their mainland coast is 600 miles away from most of what we're talking about here. But the, the source of their claims is two things. One is they claim every land feature island, um, a lot of which are like little reefs, on which are barely above water or, or usually below water, all those they claim belong to China as sort of like sovereign territory. And the other claim, which is mysterious and the most disruptive one, is the so-called nine-dash line claim, which is essentially a series of lines on a map that encircle what appears to be almost all of the South China Sea, um, pretty much. And what's disruptive about this nine-dash line claim is that it's really not uh, grounded in claims about the land or about the uh, or claims. It's not really clear what it's grounded in. But what they've done is that they attach this map to a note they sent to the United Nations back in 2009, which showed this nine-dash line, which 
uh, which is, you know, which essentially seems to suggest they think all of the waters and the islands there are somehow within their sovereign control. Now, what's true? Where, yes. where did they get this nine dash line map from? I mean, right. is it, uh, you know, was Xi Jinping just sitting down <laughs> at the uh, local Chinese restaurant <laughs> with his buddies on the Politburo and just said, let's just make up a line that will give us the maximum amount of territory in the Pacific Ocean? I mean, why don't they just draw it all the way over to Hawaii <laughs> while they're at it? Yeah, so this one is interesting. And here, I think. We can absolve the communists of this one because this is not this this map originated. Really? Yes, unfortunately, we can't blame the communists for this one. This map originated, as far as anyone can tell, in the 1930s with the old uh, Chiang Kai-shek nationalist government, which was then in control of China, and it was really uh, just a, a map that was issued um, by one of the bureaus in the uh, in in the Chiang Kai-shek government during the 1930s when that government was barely in control of China, but wanted to preserve its rights in the South China Sea. Now, at that time. It's worth noting the Philippines was controlled by the United States. Vietnam was controlled by France. It's a very different period during that, you know, and uh, those colonial powers essentially controlled what was going on in the South China Sea. But China was a very weak state. But the, the nationalist government issued this map. Um, no one's really sure how seriously anyone took it. Certainly as a practical matter, China, Chinese government had no facilities, no control, had no navy, really. So it did not yeah, assert no, no, any control. It, it never did, really. Um what, but they, what the, 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 the claim was that Chinese fishermen had been down there for many thousands of years using the reefs as, as, as important fishing ground. And so the, the government in China, the nationalist government at the time, said, well, that we're just going to claim it all. But they didn't really specify what they were claiming. Um, there's a lot of historical evidence that's been dug up recently to say that they didn't even really know what they, they didn't identify all the land features specifically. They weren't sure what the land features were out there. They weren't sure how many islands. So they just threw a map out there and they drew a line around the waters just to say, okay, we, we're just going to claim everything. Um, and, yeah. and so it was not a, what you would consider to be a normal mechanism under international law at the time, or even now of how, uh, how you would claim uh, sovereign rights. Um, about, you know, sometimes when you read in the popular press accounts of this, uh, it's reported the Chinese actually go back to the, you know, wandering travels of the great fleet of the eunuch admiral, <laughs> Uh, is this is this actually true? I mean, is this is this, is this, is this actually first of all, this is a sort of eunuch admiral shows off off Hawaii, and all of a sudden Hawaii becomes a territory of the Chinese Empire. So tell us a little bit about this guy and whether his actual, uh, you know, his actual journey can actually give rise to land claims on the part of the Chinese Communist Party today. So I'll say there are two things. So it's important to think that with as as a legal matter, things that the Ming Dynasty did in, in the 15th century. Um, or the 16th century, uh, have no legal bearing. I think if we were to do that mechanism, I think there's uh, certainly for water rights, but even for land rights, unless the general rule of international law is you have to continuously occupy and control something uh, over, it's sort of like property law. You can't just say, I own it, and then 500 years later come back and say, hey, that's mine, right? It's got to be con continuously controlling. And it's the same for international law. So it's true that the uh, Chinese fleets during the Ming Dynasty, I like the way you refer to them as the eunuch admiral, um, he was also, well, he was an, like and, 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 and he was a Muslim too, right? He was like, you know, he was a, uh, and he, yeah, he was, he was, he was a really fascinating guy. And, but his fleets, they went all over. In fact, they didn't just, they went to Africa, they went to India. Um, interestingly, they went all the it way was to, the first Road initiative. Yes, they went to Sri Lanka. Uh, but, you know, and look, the, to some degree, Chinese nationalists over the century, over the uh, last century have used those travels as a way to claim some sort of Chinese 
um, historical connection. But frankly, you know, China's never actually controlled uh, most, even the places he went to, they didn't control or even claim in any sort of formal way. Now, what they did do was they would invite them to send tribute. And so some of these countries would send emissaries to China. In particular, the one that's fascinating me always is Sri Lanka, which sent an emissary to the Ming dynasty and paid tribute. And then later on, Chinese nationalists say, well, that means Sri Lanka is also <laughs> part of China. <laughs> But that's not what that means when you send tribute. It's almost like just sending an ambassador, you know, to show your respect to this great um, admiral. But anyways, all these historical claims have been caught up in this great nationalist movement of the last hundred years in China, which is to bring back China as a great power and to fill out this image of China as a great power by looking at the past, the great dynasties of the past, um, and saying, well, you know, the Ming Dynasty, the the they controlled all these things, they visited all these. We should. That's part of our inheritance as China today. And that is what serves to some degree as, as what's driving a lot of the sentiment in China, that they have these rights or claims to the South China Sea. But it's driven, it doesn't really have any legal basis, and that's problematic for obvious reasons. But also, even as a historical matter, it doesn't really make sense. The Romans can't claim, you know, things um, that they happened to travel to a thousand years ago. And I think, but the Chinese uh, government is marshalling uh, this history, this great national history as part of their own domestic politics to bolster the uh, image of the Chinese, of the current Chinese government as standing up for China and, and rebuilding the great China of the past. And so I think we've seen the last 20 years, a lot of the stuff was out there, but lay dormant. And the government in Taiwan was also pu pushing this as part of their ideology to bolster their own legitimacy. But when they were retreated to Taiwan, the government in the mainland eventually took up the mantle. And I think the last 20 years, especially since 2000, uh, nine, when they first started pushing the South China Sea, the government in China starts to feel, and the, the mainland government feels, we can now make this part of our own um, story. But do you mean then that China has no real claim to any parts of the South China Sea because you said under uh, just traditional international law, don't you get to the, like, the law of the sea treaty and all these things that the United States is not a party of, just the traditional rule was that you had to essentially plant your flag, you know, lay claim, uh, to that you discovered some unoccupied land, and then you'd have to continuously possess it, or you would have to show that you actually are there and that you intend to keep it. And China did neither in the period since whatever you want to say, modern international. There have been a few. There's a couple exceptions to that. So I'll say that. Um, so the story is mostly true, but not completely true because. Um, part of what happened here is decolonization opened the door. So when the, when the U.S. left the Philippines, when France left Vietnam, um, you know, the well, part of the first problem is no one lives on these islands in the South China Sea. So uh, it's yeah. not so much China never occupied it, nor did anyone else, right? There's no, there's no one living on them. And so one of the things that has strengthened China's hands is that no one lives on these islands, right? And so yeah. no one has yeah. been continuously occupying them, really, in the same sense. And so... China could say, well, we have right, as good right. a claim so as anyone. Also, no, one, no one could because they're right. They're just, like little they're rocks, little rocks in the ocean. They're little rocks yeah. in the ocean. They're not even... so. But that's also bolstered their claim today. Well, if no one did it, then why not us? And and so there have... And there's one island in particular, which in the United States at the time helped China make this claim by uh, making sure that after... Because during World War II, the Japanese ended up controlling all these islands. The Japanese withdrew and the U.S. government ferried in troops from Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government to occupy at least one of those islands that is, that could, that is big enough to sustain a military base. 
And so even today, the government in Taiwan controls this island called Taiping, Taiping Island. And there's a, there's a military base there controlled by the government of Taiwan. And they were put there by the U.S. government to try to bolster the strength of that government. So there, have, there are some claims to the land features. Um, and because no one else owned it either, there's a lot of fighting over, well, you know, why not us? It could be us. <laughs> no one else has it. Now, I think the legal perspective today is to say no one can own it. <laughs> Because none of it is land that is yeah, they're all, worthy. They're all right. There's a few yeah, though. There's a few that might satisfy that. The only one that anyone knows for sure is the one typing island. There's also one in the northwest of the South China Sea off the border of uh, Vietnam, which China has occupied. In fact, they did kick out the South Vietnamese uh, during the 1970s um, at, when the South Vietnamese were also falling apart. The, the mainland Chinese government went in and took over um, some some of the One islands. Of the problems, though, is some of these islands, uh, as the um, tribunal decision a few years ago found, some of these islands lie within the territorial seas or the economic zone of other countries like the Philippines. Yes. You know, it's, it's uh, it, even though some of these are rocks that no one could say is our island because you, but some of them are clearly within the right the territory of other countries and you even though they're unoccupied you can just show up and you know the chinese can't send a navy around the right the west coast of the united states and try to find little islands no one's living on and set up bases there right they can't um having said that we need to be careful the u.s government used to do this <laughs> we used to go to really? anywhere there was guano uh you could go and like claim a guano deposit and then claim it part of the united states it was a weird law it's but that's <laughs> That's part of our past. I think what the key thing is that under current international law, let's say the last 60 years, I think you're quite right, John. You can't just claim. They, they, all the countries in the world agreed, including, well, almost all the countries in the world agreed, including China, to abide by the United Nations Convention for the Law of the Sea, which does set out a very strict regime of the, you, you have control over the water based on land. You have to have real land. It can't just be a rock that's underwater. And only real land, so to speak, can generate legal rights to the waters. And so I think under the regime we have today, which China has agreed to, uh, they're pretty much stuck with the system you described, John, which is that you can't just randomly say a rock and occupy it and say, okay, now that's a territory, and now I control 200 miles around it as well. I think the, the way the rules are set up under the United Nations Convention for the Law of the Sea, which China has signed on to, really cut against their arguments. And so what, what's problematic and what's really been problematic for the, them in the South China Sea is that they signed this treaty. They ratified it. They did. You know, they don't have any uh, relevant reservations on these points, and yet they're making these claims, which are not in any way grounded in that treaty. And the treaty sets up a system which is intended to clear out those types of historical claims and say we're just going to follow these rules based on if you own the land, then you can have the water, you get this much water, etc. China signed on to this, but now they're essentially saying, but we're not bound by it because we also have these historical claims which I think are, you know, frankly, it's ridiculous. And other countries that would make this claim would be left and should be ridiculed for making these claims. But China can back it up, which is, I think, what makes it different. That's interesting, Julian. Let me uh, put it in the bigger context. You just mentioned China signed this Law of the Sea Treaty, which I might mention the United States has not signed because it has these very uh, sort of anti-sovereignty provisions about the mining of the seabed floor. But uh, the United States has said it does believe the rules about navigation and so on are international law. But so you said China didn't sign that treaty, they did sign that treaty, but then they won't obey 
the system for resolving disputes about territory. They won't even follow the rules about territory. Uh, is this <clears throat> part of a broader, and this is part of your book project, is this part of a broader rejection by China of the international rules? And we've seen them in uh, Hong Kong now break the handover agreement with the United Kingdom about the independence of Hong Kong for you know certain uh, certain period. And we've seen them starting uh, to look like, uh, not start a border war, but engaging in territorial aggressiveness along the border with uh, China, you know, I'm sorry, India, and now we see it with Bhutan, apparently. Uh, and of course, they've gone to war around uh, over the years under the control of the Chinese Communist Party with Vietnam, with Russia over border disputes, but they are increasingly uh, being pushy uh, in the international system. Does this show that China actually does not have any respect for international law or that they're trying to rewrite the rules of the international system? And if so, why why are they doing this when that system has benefited them, has allowed them to rise from a period of terrible poverty just 40 years ago to being the second richest country in the world? So let me sort of break that apart. I, I think that I, I take the view that China is more complicated. I, don't, I, I think it's too easy to say they're not following the rules. I think that's not a fair statement. I think historically China has really embraced, uh, what it, and the mainland government has really embraced the United Nations Charter, uh, but they've embraced the part which talks about absolute sovereignty of each individual country. And it's part of the nationalist ideology, like we're standing up, you know, we're, and they've always been aligning themselves with sort of post-colonial countries, like uh, in Africa and elsewhere, saying, just like you, we're trying to fight off the imperialists. And so I think it's fair to say that they, and, and so that's, I think, at the core of how they view international law. Why do they love international law? International law is about pretty much unfettered sovereignty of, uh, of the, uh, you know, of the sovereign of a state. And so pretty much you can't do anything to stop us. And that's why also their border conflicts fit within that vision, because it's just like, well, but we're sovereign, so we can do what we want, right? And whenever we're sovereign, international law says we can do whatever we want, and the only fight is over where the border is. Um, and it, but but and so that is a lot of where their conflicts are with India. It's essentially just a line drawing problem. Same thing with Russia, and same thing with um, uh, now. Now I'll just say this: the South China Sea and Hong Kong are different, though, and that's what worries me. So I think, although I'm not exactly happy about the border conflicts, <laughs> um, the border conflicts are a long-standing part of the mainland Chinese tradition in terms of they want a big as big a China as possible, but they're following the rules in terms of at least to some degree, you know, this is the border, this is what we're arguing over where the border is. With respect to the South China Sea, that claim is not grounded in anything traditional international law. And it does defy a, a treaty that they've signed. Um, and it's very and they haven't really come up with good, very convincing explanations for why they're just ignoring it. And they get dragged into an arbitration which had a pretty reasonable basis for jurisdiction, and they rejected it, ignored it as well. Um, and on Hong Kong, I think it's a similar thing. Hong Kong, they signed a treaty which would obligate them to maintain a certain set of rules and requirements and, and, and essentially a legal and political system in Hong Kong. They signed that treaty as part of the deal to send back, uh, to hand over uh, 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 for them to re for Hong Kong to return to China, so to speak. And I think there, it's pretty clear they're reneging on that one too. And that one, it's, those two examples, I think, are clear departures from what would otherwise be a pretty straightforward, we just have a border conflict like any other country. Um, uh, the difference I think now is that they are also making, I think, somewhat extraordinary claims like the, Hong, like the agreement with Britain essentially had no meaning. 
after the, uh, it was handed over. It was essentially a transfer agreement, which no rights extended after uh, after the agreement was executed, which is not a very compelling legal argument. And the South China Sea arguments are getting increasingly absurd. And it's not just theoretical, because in both those cases, real things are happening, right? They're now taking measures in Hong Kong that we thought, many of us thought they would never take, at least not in the first 50 years, that are seem very clearly in violation of their obligations. And, and, and it's kind of surprising. And so that, I think that's where I see, at least in my view, there does seem to be a shift and they're becoming more aggressive about essentially blowing off what would otherwise be a pretty strong international norm against it. Julian, that's a, that's a great point, I think, to, to switch a little bit and, and focus on Hong Kong, because we're just in the first weeks now of um, the new national security law. And whereas some people may have thought that you know, Beijing is going to impose this law, and then you're not going to see a lot of changes initially. It's more that they were staking their ground and they were making clear what their ultimate intentions would be. Life would sort of go on as as it has since the turnover in 97, but that's clearly not the case. And instead, what you've seen in the past couple of weeks has been actually a, a, um, uh, a rapid assault on a lot, not only of of what had been, uh, you know, accepted freedom of expression and and uh, uh, organization and the like, uh, but even reaching into libraries to start culling books that may be considered subversive, and so on, taking over property, uh, very you know, in sort of an old-fashioned way, uh, uh, to show very, you know, who's in charge. Can you break down a little bit what's going on in Hong Kong as you see it from the legal perspective, and and tell us just how much actually is disappearing and and can you talk about a free hong kong anymore or not so i think this is interesting because i think uh you're right i think what china is still relatively subtle in how they're doing this but they're less subtle than they, i think they used to be so in the old days they would sneakily send secret agents into hong kong and operate under the shadows and maybe kidnap people here and there to scare people but they would and they would bribe politicians or play with the politics in hong kong What's going on now is a more overt, and that's what's surprising. So there, and and it does seem to go directly against what they're supposed to do, uh, what their obligation, their promise essentially was to guarantee the system of Hong Kong, which was embodied in two legal documents: the Basic Law, which guarantees a lot of the freedom of expression and political rights that most of us identify with Hong Kong, and but also property rights as well. Um, and they're supposed to abide by the Basic Law, and the Basic Law itself incorporates international human rights treaties. Which are uh, which also have very strong norms in favor of freedom of expression and political dissent, um, and so they have blown through throw a lot of those. What they've done in in, in what kind of a shock and awe sort of strategy is, they've passed a law. They didn't go through the Hong Kong legislature. They passed a law at the mainland and then imposed it on the uh, Hong Kong government, uh, which is the first thing, which is highly unusual um, and has not really been done before in this context. Second, they went in and in this new law. Uh, in addition to being super restrictive of uh, of freedom of expression by defining uh, national security and crimes against national security very broadly, um, they've also added institutions to weaken Hong Kong's judicial system and police system by having essentially mainland intelligence and mainland uh, police officers operating openly in Hong Kong outside, well, no one's sure exactly, but relatively far outside the um, uh, the supervision of the local Hong Kong government and of the local Hong Kong courts. Now, some of this has not been tested yet. So you hear lawyers and, you know, people are like, well, maybe, maybe it won't be so bad. 
But I think, again, what they've done now, they're going after uh, the schools and taking out, <laughs> redoing the education system so kids will be taught to, to love China and the, and the Communist Party. <laughs> they're going into the libraries and pulling out all the books by the political dissidents. And they're frankly saying even organizing a primary for opposition parties might violate this law as well. And so I think this is a sign where they're, they're, they've taken the gloves off. They're not being so subtle anymore. Now, what's amazing, though, is that a lot of foreign businesses and um, local Hong Kong people are still... Now, I wouldn't say a lot, but a fair number are still hopeful that, well, maybe it won't be that bad. But what I see is kind of, it's, it's, this is pretty bad. And, and it, it's creeping, maybe not even so creeping, it's pretty open takeover of Hong Kong, still operating mostly through the local Hong Kong government, but really doing it in a way that is pretty dramatically um, able to uh, exert mainland power in a way that we almost unimaginable a year ago in Hong Kong. Um, and so I think it's really a pen to the system. But I am surprised to see you still see American and foreign banks saying, well, we're still like Hong Kong. We don't want to get involved in these local political issues. Maybe we can still operate here. Um, and so, you know, I think corporate America and European businesses, it's very hard for them to give up on Hong Kong. And I think they want to ride it out and maybe hopefully it'll be the, all for the best. The other thing I'll just say is that from, there, from a lot of these foreign businesses, okay, it's, it's as bad as China, but they're kind of used to being in China. So they're like, yeah, you know. It's okay. But we do see dramatic things like the tech, tech companies pulling out. Even TikTok is pulling out of Hong Kong. That's probably a sign that they don't trust the new system as well. So I do think it's a dramatic change. But I do see that there's enough sort of wiggle room in the language that we see people making arguments, including you know, foreign lawyers and foreign business saying it won't be that bad. So there continues to be some pushback. So let's, let's get to the part of the law that we know is most concerning to John. And this is, I believe it's Article 38. And this states that Beijing considers actions uh, taken to undermine its control of Hong Kong, the subversion, advocate for independence and democracy and so on and so forth, terrorist activities, uh, that it will, it will essentially um, prosecute people anywhere in the world that you don't have to be a, a uh, living in the territory or a resident, as, as the code says, but that anyone who you know, writes, let's say, that, that Beijing has no real uh, legitimacy to control Hong Kong could be found in violation of the law. Um, and potentially, if you're in some country that finds itself in deep hock to China, you could be remanded over to, to Beijing. Is that possible? Or initially Hong Kong and then Beijing, right? Because if it's serious enough, by the way, something not something you didn't mention, which I think is important, if all of these laws are, are still to be um, prosecuted under Hong Kong law, even though we now know it's Beijing law, and yet there is a other provision, I think it's Article 51 or 55, which states things serious enough at the determination of, of, of Beijing authorities will actually, Hong Kong law no longer applies. It is mainland law that applies, which means people can be sent back. That's the extradition issue. So are, are people actually at, at risk abroad from, uh, from Beijing charging them under this law and, and maybe some banana republic deciding to send them back to Hong Kong for trial? It is... Uh... It is, it's a non-trivial risk anymore because under the letter of the law, uh, the Hong Kong government can charge you. Interestingly, the mainland government doesn't have a legal regime quite as expansive like this. So uh, under mainland law, it's actually more restrictive. Right. You can't be charged with this stuff. Right. The Hong Kong law was drafted in a way that what people think was, it was trying to aim at Hong Kongers over abroad who are trying to support democracy movements in Hong Kong. And so this is to deter them. But I think effectively, what I think you're right. What it means is that 
actions you take outside of Hong Kong, which the Hong Kong government prosecutors believe are violation of their national security laws, which are very broad, and it could be anything like essentially attacking the Hong Kong government, really. Um, it could be a violation of the national security law, which is a crime, it could be charged in Hong Kong, and if you have an extradition treaty with Hong Kong, the country could extradite you there, uh, in theory. Now, there are a lot of obstacles to that, um, and it, uh, but, it, but I think you're right that it's at least, it's, it's what would have been laughable before, or impossible, is now in the realm of possibility, and that itself is very disquieting. Um, so yes, I think John should be a little worried, but so am I. As as we all as we all, all right. should be. Yes. What um let's actually uh, get for a second. I think you just mentioned that interestingly, the mainland doesn't have as expansive a uh, um, a a legal reach in in some ways as you as you mentioned as Hong Kong has now imposed through through Beijing's diktat. But could you actually talk just a little bit about the legal system in in China on the mainland, um, it, you know, one of the things that Americans spent a long time doing was trying to help the the Communist Party back in the the eighties, you know, during the Reagan era and the like, build up rule of law. This was, of course, in that period where um, there was the beginning of a separation from you know church and state, so to speak. You know, you had the party, and then you had civil society. You had the party, and then you had government. Uh, and a lot of U.S. legal organizations went over. A lot of U.S. lawyers went over. Um, what, as you look at the the legal landscape today in a very different uh, China, what, does it have any legitimacy from what we would see as a as a legal system based on norms and impartiality and so on? So I, I guess I, this is actually a more complicated question than um, than sometimes I think we. We, we, we think about it when, in the press and stuff. I think you're right that we, first of all, you're totally right. We've poured hundreds of millions of dollars into uh, the legal system. We meaning the United States and other countries. And frankly, universities in the United States, um, every year we get, including John's university and my university, we get uh, uh, Chinese students who come uh, here for one year law degrees or go back. And there have been training programs for judges funded by the U.S. government, training programs for Chinese judges. And, and I myself was sent on a Fulbright uh, scholarship, which is a fellowship, which is a U.S. government program, to teach law. I taught U.S. constitutional law in a Chinese university. And this is part of the same process of trying to reform and support the Chinese legal system, which essentially has been only in place since 1980 in the modern form after the Cultural Revolution ended. So there's a lot of possibility for just changing it and reforming because it it's relatively new. And I would just say, and also I'll just say one last thing, a lot of U.S. businesses do billions of dollars of business in China and do rely on the legal system to some degree. And, and so what I would say about the Chinese legal system is this, it's that it has developed a lot and it has improved a lot under the influence of these foreign sort of forces and money and also just the thousands of Chinese students who study abroad who come back with sort of ideas of being a lawyer and all these law firms and even law firms, Chinese law firms merging with foreign law firms. The legal profession there is pretty strong. But I would say this, um, and so for commercial and corporate and even for intellectual property, the government has been for its own reasons pushing to try to make it more friendly for foreign businesses and for businesses in general. And so you do see litigations, you see decisions, you see the types of things you, courts, and the types of things you would imagine a court system would have. It's not perfect, has a lot of problems, but it's better than it was in the past. The real dark hole in China is their criminal justice system. And combined with their national security system, combined with the party's influence behind everything. 
And so the real, what really destabilizes the legal system in China is this problem of if you run afoul of the party or if you run afoul of what the party thinks is a national security issue, they have the authority to detain you administratively for, with no particular notice of charges. They can detain you under the national security law in China for six months and longer without announcing what the charges are, providing any evidence. Um, they, now, the only defense is that they do this to domestic people too, but that doesn't make us feel better. <laughs> right. Um, and sometimes people just disappear and you have no idea what happened to them. Right. Um, and sometimes they're under party supervision. The party's investigating them. They're not even under government supervision. And so there's this whole separate world operating outside the shadow of the normal Chinese legal system, which all of us, including me, training Chinese students, have poured a lot of our time and effort into helping develop. Um, and it's this sort of alternate dark system that is non-transparent. No one can investigate it. There's no judicial review. There's no political accountability. There's nothing. Once you get caught up in that system, it's all over. And what usually happens is if after about a year of being held, usually in a dark room without any lawyers or access to anyone, they trot you out, you plead guilty, and that's it, right? Um, and uh, it's not a great system. It's, it's a terrible system. Um, the only thing that can be said about it is that it's worse for Chinese people than it is for foreigners. But what's new about it is that they're applying it to foreigners as well, too. Um, they're no longer holding off and staying it. You know. like it's, a, it's basically the system of justice we saw during the Cold War by, you know, communist countries. They're just still sticking to what they've always yeah, done. Yeah, but those old communist countries <laughs> yeah, rather, didn't have gigantic you know, U.S. law firms with hundreds of lawyers wandering around China doing business and signing contracts. That's what's new about yeah, it. That's, they didn't that's have unusual. thousands of law students who were trained at University of California at Berkeley <laughs> Law School, right? You know, which um, is made and Columbia Law School and, and Harvard, law, and Harvard law School, right? I mean, th th that's what's different about it. We have like an incredible connection to their legal system through our universities and through our own sort of legal profession. And and yes, so. But it's uh, well. Let me just pause. It's it's actually so the legal system in a way, uh, in your mind, the way you described it over there symbolizes or expresses what they're trying to do in a broader sense, which is somehow to combine uh, you know, the the new world, the new ca capitalist world that they want to be a part of and have benefited from, but still retain a iron grip on sort of politics, norms, values, and the legal system is both. Right? It's both, you know, it both facilitates capitalism as it were, facilitates economic transactions, but it is also the way the society governs itself. And they're trying to figure out some kind of hybrid system that combines political, you know, political communist oppression with free market capitalism in a strange way. Yes, I think that's what makes it different. That's why it's not really like the old Soviet Union in that respect. It is much more of a regular legal system. And foreign businesses, foreign law firms, foreign lawyers operate in that system. Um, and it often looks like a regular legal system. But then at the same time, there are these things that if you cross this line, you never know, you lose swept away one night in the dark. And so what you do there if you operate in the business is you don't cross those lines. You don't come anywhere near it, and you just keep your head down, and you focus on your little transactions, and you make but your money. But any one of those American lawyers now can be uh, subject to detention the way these Canadian businessmen have been seized by the Chinese government should. Say, suppose, uh, suppose Canada does extradite, uh, you know, Meng to the United States, uh, you know, the daughter of the founder of Huawei, uh, for uh, sanctions evasion, 
wouldn't you be worried if you were an American lawyer working in Shanghai or Beijing that the Chinese government would just scoop you up as a bargaining chip too? I would be worried. I think you should be worried. I think, uh, but having said that, look, there's also a culture, and uh, John, you probably met these folks from Misha, people who like, I, I know China. I'm an expert in China. Like this wouldn't happen to me. I have friends here. I've lived here for 20 years. This is about people who cause trouble, right? Um, and uh, I don't think that's the case anymore. I don't know if that was ever the case, but certainly not the case anymore. But I think there's still strong sentiment among you know, the you know, Americans or foreigners who feel like they get China, they know how to operate in China. They're not afraid of the Chinese government because they know that they're, they'll be okay. But I do think that for the average person... Yeah, the Canadian it, guys probably thought that too. They right? did. They, were, they did. They both they were are... Actually, they were not temporary tourists. They were people with long connections to... Yes. Yeah. former diplomat. I think you're right. <laughs> and I think it's... So that's why those cases, I think... And there have been cases like that before. It's just these two have gotten the most coverage for it. Where I think we all do need to be worried about this. And so even people who are who love China, who know a lot about China, who've lived there for years, decades even, are susceptible to being uh, picked up by the... And really, this is the party side of it, not the legal system. It's the way the party. Let me, let, let, let's, uh, let me close with uh, one last question. Uh, Julian, you sort of project, for the future, project into the future uh, what's going on. Do you think maybe that China has made a serious mistake uh, both legally and politically, by being so aggressive in places like the South China Sea, or as Misha pointed out, in Hong Kong, or right this, or by claiming you know sort of universal jurisdiction to get anyone who criticizes China around the world, and that they are sparking uh, backlash, right? That you, the United States is now giving Secretary says giving speeches now, calling on country, trying to organize countries to. Resist the South China Sea. The Trump administration is imposing heavier and heavier sanctions. Um, this morning, Great Britain just announced they're going to exclude Huawei from their telecommunications network. Um, maybe under Xi Jinping, China moved too fast, and now they've uh, given other countries the grounds to come together and try to form a containment policy towards China. If they had played within the rules and continued to grow economically at the pace they had before, uh, but had not tried these territorial claims and had not uh, gone back on sort of Hong Kong, they might have actually been in a superior position 10 years from now. What do you, what do you think? I think you're right. I think that if I was like a Chinese strategist, I think, I, I think overextension is a real problem or extending themselves before they're ready. Uh, the two things I would just say, South China Sea and Hong Kong, both have really, it's not the reaction United States government. I think that's remarkable because I think US government has already turned against China. It's the people to watch are the Australians who trade more with China than any other country, the Canadians, New Zealanders, all of Europe. Um, you see signs in all of those places where the longstanding approach was we just need to continue to engage and work with China, where Hong Kong in particular has really turn their views against China. And the South China Sea has been a very important way for the U.S. to build a coalition with uh, Southeast Asian countries like Vietnam that would not otherwise be willing to trust the U.S. And so I think China has really hurt itself on those two things. And the third thing I think that's really hurting China is the treatment of the Uyghurs, which is a dramatic, uh, horrifying human rights violation that not even the Europeans can look past, <laughs> um, you know, uh, you know, uh, and I think that uh, and it's and even the Muslim countries are going to get some pressure from there. You know, why are we turning a blind eye to, you know, 
this, this dramatic treatment of people based on their Muslim beliefs. And so those three things have really set China back. And what I worry about, though, is the United States, is that we are not as strong as we were. <laughs> we're, just, we're divided. We're uh, bogged down by the pandemic. And the pandemic has lost us a lot of our own sort of goodwill around the world because we don't seem to show we can we can manage it at home, whereas China is able to say, hey, look, we've got control of this. And and so I think that um, I worry the United States is not in a position to take advantage of this, although other countries are pushing it back. You really see this. Look, Australia trades so much with China that they are so easily vulnerable to economic pressure from China. If they're willing to stand up to China, that says a lot, I think, and other countries, I think. And that's a good sign. And uh, hopefully the United States government, um, just despite all of our divisions, can, can, can work with countries and start building coalitions. And the, and the action yesterday on the South China Sea is a really good start. I think that will really build confidence with countries like Vietnam and Indonesia and Malaysia that the U.S. will be there to support them. And I think we need to build coalitions with uh, Europe and with these other countries as well and do a better job of reaching out to countries that China usually uses as their allies, like African countries or South American countries, to really start building that coalition. But it's going to take work. And the U.S. has its own problems right now. And I think what I worry about us is that we're like with everything, we have our own distractions, our own obsessions domestically that will keep our, take our eye off the ball. Well, I think that's a, a great place to wind up. You've you've brought us back uh, home, which is obviously the area that we we are most focused on, which is what should our policy be. Um, again, a lot of what you've talked about, Julian, is is going against the assumptions that we've made for thirty years about the, the the type of society, the type of government, the type of partner that China was going to become. And I think I think the balance that you struck is actually particularly interesting. You know that in many ways this is still a normal, or has become more of a normal legal system, and yet there are there are traps and there are pitfalls uh, that we are we once again have to be uh, aware of. Uh, but all of that ultimately comes back to getting good policy. So I think you've, you've brought us a long way through that discussion, and we appreciate it. Um, this is another aspect. I mean, most of us aren't trained in American legal thought, let alone Chinese legal thought. So it's something else we have to put into the into the hopper as we, we try to consider where we go forward. Uh, but uh, I don't think you've actually helped John with his with his concerns about his legal jeopardy in China now and Hong Kong. Uh, we're clearly going to have to be going to Taiwan for our, our food fix, and maybe you'll be able to join us. And what we can then do is co- compare and contrast the mainland and Hong Kong's legal systems with Taiwan's legal system. So with that said, Julian Koo, professor and dean at Hofstra University, we are really thrilled that you took time to come and educate us. And uh, thank you for joining the Pacific Century. Thank you. Thanks. It's fun, guys. Bye-bye. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.